0: remind me? Using cable on the left. Cable on the left?
1: The one that says L.
0: Cable on the left, okay. You had that, <laughs> and had that, I don't care, it's your ears. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome back to the studio. I'm slightly getting used to this now. Do you think we're being a little bit too relaxed, thinking... Life's back to the normal, Jamie, or um, is well, it just three and then it'll be locked down again?
1: Well, we could be, but the sun's out. Let's not worry about it today. That's it's it. It's a beautiful day. So.
0: Sun's out. <laughs> We're here. I'm Ian, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. Jamie, who are you? I'm
1: Jamie Merrick, and I work at Salesforce. Lovely.
0: Now, we have in the studio two lovely guests. So, Jesse, Sien, uh, why don't you tell us who you are, and then we can kick off. Jesse, you go first.
2: Great to be here. Thanks. I'm Jesse Baker. I'm the founder and CEO of Provenance. And I'm Sien Fate. I'm the Group
3: Product and Platform Director for Kingfisher.
0: Right. So, while everyone is wondering what Group Product and Development Director means, Mm -hmm. let's pick up on Jesse. So, provenance, A, what a great word. It's got that sort of biblical English literature, it just feels real. But since we're talking provenance, let's start off with your provenance. Thumbnail sketch, Jesse, of who you are and then how you ended up provenancing.
2: I love that. So meta. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, my provenance.
2: Yes, I mean, started out my career in manufacturing, engineering and supply chains. So got to see the reality of how products are created, the impact that they have on people and planet near and far. Um, Did a bit of a career pivot into software design and development and then worked at the very end of the supply chain. So helping brands to market their products to shoppers and then actually went to do a PhD in computer science, looking specifically at Web3, so blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and I was really interested in how they could impact society, and enable more transparency to help us to understand kind of the, the impact that we have as humans. So yeah, Providence was a side project that turned into a bit of a full time gig. And yeah, now we're a team of 25 people based just down the road in King's Cross, working with brands to help them be transparent on the impact of their products.
0: Right. So let's just talk a bit about Providence. I want to go back to the earlier stage, because we can't just skip over material design and PhD in computing. Because, you know, that's just not a segue we can leave lying but We've
2: a lot of education but <laughs> tell, us,
0: tell us about provenance because either you were pre and you created this wave or you've lucked out because no topic is hotter at the moment than supply chain transparency blah 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 so tell us what be provenance <laughs> what be provenance
2: yeah i mean i i think it's Provenance really came out of my own personal frustration. I just wanted to know the impact that our products have on people and planet. And I thought it was unreasonable that that information was not accessible to me. The end of the supply chain, the person that literally funds the entire thing. Like, how do I have no information on where this things come from and the impact that it has? And it's something that matters to me. But I'm a lazy shopper. I don't want to have to go and search that out through endless amounts of Googling and travelling in supply chains, which is what I did early on in my career. I think that information should be accessible to me right in my lazy e-commerce scrolling. It should be accessible to me so I can make an informed decision. So I think it's that kind of disgruntled, unreasonable, (laughs) personal grudge.
0: (laughs) Scratching your own itch. Yeah, exactly. Now, also joining in the lazy camp, I have to sympathise with that. However, as a fully paid-up member of the British Skeptics Association, <laughs> anything that's overly simplistic, I immediately tend not to trust. And more importantly, our research director, Martin, has been working in our third year, the sustainability report. And we're tracking about 77 fully accredited super pucker standards for various bits of sustainability in what is an enormous thing. So we all think about supply chains as if somehow it's an office at the end of the corridor, but it's just everything in the world. So you have sustainability for employee standards, for water quality, for the lighting used, whether you've got a green roof or not. And you put all those together and they somehow don't easily add up to anything that can have a nice little traffic light on it. So firstly, I've seen your framework, so maybe tell us about the framework, but then how you get to something that says... Stamp, this is okay for the lazy person to consume.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a journey. Sustainability is so complex. I mean, it really is like our entire ecosystems. And it's so networked and connected. And yeah, I think it's, it is very difficult to distill to something simple. And I don't think that's necessarily a a bad thing. Like the the complexity means we are embracing all of the issues. You know, it isn't just about carbon, it's biodiversity, it's labour rights, it's the impact on communities. And so at Providence, what we've tried to do with the framework is essentially distill down the the key claims that brands are making both at a brand level and at a product level and essentially what we're trying to do is to is to help brands make claims that are consistent so wherever you see net zero it means the same thing so you don't have to kind of do loads of digging to check, if, you know, if this really is a, a product that is... Uh, so it's not
0: net zero asterisk, yeah. see small print well, below. But you you, you joke,
2: but there's so many different ways that people are communicating on carbon and net zero can mean many things. It could just mean the HQ of the company is net zero. And when 90% of the impact lies in the supply chain, that's actually very misleading. Mm. But you don't want to, to to just look at the HQ of the company. We need to have a net zero supply chain that's end to end. So yeah, it's uh it's definitely, a, particularly the, the carbon area is a topic that's, that's complex, and there's a lot of kind of greenwash and, and misleading information going on. So yeah, provenance is really just trying to standardise those claims, to so make them very simple and consistent, and then ensure they're credible. So. Businesses that use provenance have to submit evidence and or get to verification, which means we're connecting to third party data sources to really say this is a fact. This isn't just the brand marking its own homework. This is a fact related to the sustainability or social impact of this product. And yeah, essentially, the framework kind of sets that out for brands. Today, we don't kind of ladder that up into a score quite Mm -hmm. yet. That that could be in the future. For now, we're just trying to create consistent, credible claims so that we can, yes, yeah, start to get the ball rolling on what is exactly, as you said, a complex topic.
0: So, Jesse, we've met before, and I trust you implicitly. So, if you say it's fine, that's good enough for me. <laughs> but not everyone would be as trusting, or they haven't met you. So, why is your assurance? better than Jamie tipping me a nod and a wink or Cien giving me a handshake Um, How do we know we can trust you when we haven't met you?
2: Yes, no, um, it's a, a pretty critical part of what we're doing at provenance is firstly helping brands to be transparent so that's first of all but the the key thing is also to do so in a trustworthy way so firstly it's the consistency of the framework so if they're working with provenance we we know that they're using the same standards and talking about the same things so you won't be misled uh, from the get-go with the language but then essentially the framework is governed by an independent council we have our integrity council um, that are coming from leading NGOs helping to make sure the governance of that framework work really is independent and it's, um, you know, reflecting the the critical issues in the different industries. And then everything is open source. So you can see exactly how those what we call proof points that sit at the point of sale have been generated. So that's the key claims that could be net zero or something related to labor rights or communities. So that's all open source. And then if you've got a verified proof point, that's actually a smart contract that sits on top of a blockchain. So you can actually independently verify that this is correct, right? there in in, uh, the the, the point of sale on e-commerce. Should you be an uber geek, you can go all the way through and you can actually see this has been independently verified by this auditor on this date at this time and you can see the full audit history. Now, we don't expect many people to do that (laughs) because you really have to be a bit of a nerd. And it turns out lots of people are nerds. So that's interesting. But yeah, the the idea is that it's there. People know that this is an independent kind of fact-checked piece of information. And, you know, at Green Claims, our proliferating the internet right now mm. and so knowing that that assurance is is there I think is is a really important part of why you should kind of yeah. look out for provenance.
0: And we've seen quite a, a bit of challenge now for greenwashing claims. Yes. So ironically in a world that we seem to have plenty of people enforcing things but it's the Advertising Standards Council that seem to be saying I'm sorry you can't claim us a green sneaker because it isn't. Yeah. So it is ironic that they've ended up as the vanguard of enforcement. Now, reputation will drive brands, firstly, to want to be sustainable, and secondly, to want to be seen to be sustainable, and thirdly, not to want to be caught out telling porky pies. Yes. So you're in the middle of that, but they're also quite resistant to full transparency. I mean, who amongst us you know, would relish that? What's the conversation like with a brand when you're saying, welcome to this open source open world tell us how you're doing and let everyone see five minute conversation or uh...
2: <laughs> used to be a very long conversation i mean it's so marked how it's changed when i first started provenance and i was talking about transparency some people thought i was talking about see through products like like literally like products made of glass <laughs> you know like they didn't they didn't i didn't have a clue of what i was talking about like no no idea and that's, that's changed, it couldn't have changed it's done a complete 180 I think now brands recognise it's inevitable glass box brands are the future like, you know and it's So, not...
0: glass box brands?
2: Yeah, so brands that are totally see-through, like oh, their, right. employee, their employees are nice bit,
0: nice talking choice. about yeah, what's
2: right. going on, you know like and, and we're seeing that so much, like every employee has a voice in the public media domain, so, you know, brands have to be authentic to what they're putting out there, and increasingly, if they're not employees are piping up and telling you what's going on and so yeah brands are realizing that's happening and that's accelerating and so they're getting on the front foot being open and -hmm. you know i mean we've just seen it play out this year i mean so many brands are kind of talking about what they're doing from a sustainability point of view but also talking about it in a negative way so saying they've screwed up like you know being honest particularly the kind of fast growth d2c brands that are kind of dominating internet retailing at the moment they really are fessing up and saying look we're not doing enough but mm. this is where we're going. And I think they are gaining the trust of consumers by having that kind of a- approach. But it, 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 you know, it's, it's all a journey. Like, it's changed hugely over the past few years. And but yeah, there's still a long way to go. And there's still a lot of brands that are very used to the kind of, yeah, the mad Men era replied behind the billboard. Like, this is what we are. Like, don't talk about what we really are. But I think mm. that's dying.
1: I think what's really interesting is you, you're trying to do something really ambitious, which is, of course, when you have a business, you're trying to do something ambitious. But people have been to try to do standards of different things, not necessarily exactly what you're doing before. Is it the technology, just thinking from uh, for those people who are interested in technology out there, is it the technology that's made it possible, or is it something else that made it possible? Because you sort of hinted at it was the mind shift and the attitude that has changed, which is great. But is it the technology the only way that you could actually deliver it, or is there a. Yeah, great
2: else? question. I, I really think the. Mind shift and attitude is the key catalyst here. I think we are seeing sustainability, transparency becoming kind of very mainstream issues. You know, when it's talked about in the sun or whatever, it's like it's a thing now, right? It's not just for niche consumers. But it's still early days. You know, there's still a long way to go before that's really actioned rather than just talked about. But yeah, so I think that mindset shift has been a huge catalyst for our business. Um, but yeah, technology is essential. I mean, we're serving up um, provenance proof points on e-commerce sites, so on product pages and search and filter, helping people, you know, change their decisions. But you know, we're serving them up to millions of shoppers every day, and I think it would be much harder to do without kind of the explosion of e-commerce and mm. the data availability coming from supply chains to be able to sort of substantiate those claims. But there's there's still a long way to go, like a, a really long way to go, like, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing a good old glimpse of what the future can be. And some brands are really ahead of the game. But yeah, it's not evenly distributed yet, still a lot of work <laughs> to do. So.
0: Tell us about blockchain then, because you said it and we all nodded, carried on. <laughs> like we do. Like like, like <laughs> we do. Uh, but given that some, some of us around the table have a PhD in something computing and the rest of us don't. Anyone <laughs> want to volunteer? I was meant to No, 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 I don't. You're no. right. So there are there are different flavours of blockchain. Yes. As because and approach. Yes. So which blockchain are you using, and how can I be certain that your blockchain doesn't disappear if you forget to put 50p in the meter <laughs> <Yeah>. one month? <laughs>
2: and they, they do work like that. They are like pay-as-you-go meter <laughs> systems. So we work with the Ethereum blockchain. So we were, you know, really lucky to be quite early adopters in the Ethereum community. And actually, we were one of the first decentralized applications on Ethereum. You know, on, even on the testnet back in 2015. So it's been really fun to be part of that community and its development and it is still very early stage I would say kind of when I first started provenance we did focus quite a lot on the blockchain innovation I think coming from a PhD and and it was quite a hot topic but actually you know the I guess the more we have really got kind of deep into solving our customers problems we've realized the technology the technology isn't the star the technology should sit under the hood it's the underlying integrity it's not the main reason to work with provenance it's it's you know it's the mm. it's is the under the hood, it doesn't really need to be the star of the show. So we've kind of pushed it back to be in the kind of background, but it's quite an important part of our future. And I think for a few reasons, like there's a philosophical reason of why we want to use blockchains and a more decentralized approach. Like we don't want to be a, a kind of Facebook of product sustainability claims, mm-hmm. like being a sort of centralized source of information, I think presents a lot of integrity challenges that we think we've play, seen play out with with big tech and continue to do so. And also, yeah, I think there's lots of exciting things you can build off of with blockchain tech. So it's not just about the auditability and the, the tamper-proof nature of of the claims but also yeah what we can build on top of that so mm-hmm. a lot of our work now is looking at that kind of web 3 future so how, how might that evolve and yeah i'm really passionate about that i'm very excited by by tokens and in like, the kinds of incentives that they could create for people you know like it's so crazy today we just take the internet for granted that we're just the product right like we, we like stuff and Facebook make the money. Like, why? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I should, I should make the money from sharing videos and and, and kind of uh, catalyzing interest in different content. Like, why? Why am I just the product? So I, I think what Web three presents is a really exciting future where we can all be part of the solution. And I believe it can catalyze, yeah, adoption mm. of of sustainability and more sustainable practices. But. It's so for learning. those of
0: us who go as far as web 2.0, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it was such an important integer, it needed a point 0.0, just in case anyone was confused whether 2.0 is the same as 2. Anyway, 2.0, we got to web 2.0. You're now upping the ante to web 3. Yes. Uh, in case uh, people haven't caught up with their uh, newsletters this morning, quick thumbnail of web 3.
2: So web3 is just a sort of catch-all term for like the decentralized re-decentralization of the internet. So web1 was a quite decentralized internet, right? So mm-hmm. email and and things like that very peer to peer. Yeah. Uh, web web2 essentially just centralized all of that and took, you know, took away the servers and put everything into the cloud. Lots of great benefits, but bought walled gardens, you know, centralized control. Web3 is a kind of a new movement that's trying to, yeah, essentially re-decentralize but put Power back into the hands of the people, ideally, using but you know, enabling people to control their own data and, and things like that. But it's just it's really just getting started. I still think it's very hmm. early days, but I, I think you know, a
0: lot of but you mentioned, for example, tokenization, yes, which is the ability to transfer value from one place to another, yes, very similar to money, but yes. without a central bank. <laughs> yeah. So we're seeing, if you like, this breaking down, yes. of the systems of authority if you like, of provenance. Yes. So if I pick up a £10 note this morning, yes. then I look at it, I think this has come from a Britannic Majesty's Bank of England. Yes. I smell it, I sniff it, and I think this is real. Careful, yes. Yeah,
2: carefully
0: Sorry, yes, yes, voice. I'm getting too excited. <laughs> <10 pound laughs> uh, I'm just think
2: of you sniffing £10 <laughs> <one> notes
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the only one? Yes. Oh, dear. So with the well-sniffed uh, £10 pound note, yes. so you have this idea of the authority structures, yes. whereas now we're seeing open banking, yes. we're seeing increased transparency multiple blockchains as part of the blockchain approach so you know it's going to be an interesting time with composable headless Mm. disaggregation of things more servicey stuff which actually was promised in web 2.0 with apis
2: yes i mean some of it has been realized with web 2.0 like i'm not like a web 3 kind of maximalist like i I do think there's a lot of great sort of open decentralized work happening without blockchains like open banking is fantastic example i think it's Brilliant! It should be celebrated so much more. We so don't need
0: to destroy everything. Web. No, <laughs> I don't think
2: everything needs to be in the metaverse <laughs> on a blockchain to be Web three. But I, yeah, or or hinting towards that direction. We do
0: realize, of course, that all accountants amongst us are happy because the blockchain is the validation after seven hundred years of double entry bookkeeping.
2: Yes, it is. <laughs> so
0: you know, just quick shout out to all fellow chartered accountants out there. Our day has come. Just took us a while. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So. Let's talk about conversations you're having with retailers. And I'm thinking about a presentation that you were at, Jamie, a couple Ooh. of years ago, when uh, the lovely people at Adidas were talking about oh, their yes. moves to sustainability. Mm. Some of it was absolutely fantastic, like open sourcing some of their innovations on recycled plastic, running an innovation lab where they didn't take the IP of the people that they'd funded. All very inspiring. And the tears were in our eyes. We're thinking, a lovely future with three stripes. And then their CFO said, unfortunately, we only directly control 5% of our costs. So he said, it doesn't matter how much paper you recycle, how many light bulbs you turn off, for it 5% is head office, and the rest is in our supply chain. So when the phone rings, and they go, hi, Jesse, can you help us? What is that conversation? Because they've got direct-to-customer how we present ourselves their own assurance for the control and then random other people who previously would have met their supplier criteria yes do you bribe do you poison people no okay fine send us stuff was now there's this other level as well so what's a typical engagement like monday morning phone rings what What are people asking you to do for them
2: yeah so i think it's important to recognize that provenance is only a piece of the puzzle because yeah supply chain transparency uh, is really complicated and there's quite a few different actors that are all playing their piece so provenance is has a very specific role which is that we collaborate with brands to help them be publicly transparent but in order to do that you need to have done an awful lot of work internally on mm. your supply chain so traceability systems life cycle assessments looking at the carbon footprint of your products as you said like different policies and 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 you know worker voice technology in in your factories and you need to be a brand that is really taking kind of ownership and responsibility for for your supply chain and and know about your supply chain or at least begun to start to to know about it so so that work kind of already needs to have started to happen for provenance to be useful our job is to come in and help really capitalize on the great work you're doing and get that information out there into the public in a way that has integrity so can be trusted by shoppers. So really, we're, we're the kind of a, a, a sort of piece of the puzzle towards the, the end of a lot of work. Actually, you mm. you will have had to have, have laid quite a bit of groundwork, and we do help with brands to help them understand that groundwork so that they can make a plan. And you know, the reality is, transparency is a journey. You don't have to be fully and beautifully transparent end to end to get started. You know, we often are helping brands to open up just a little bit of information, mm. some key claims. Distribute that through their different kind of retailing channels, and then build on that over time. So, kind of every year or even every quarter, making sure they've they've got more things to be transparent on in a in a digital way. So, yeah, a lot of provenance's work is is collaborating with internal different internal systems um, that might already exist, or or we help kind of introduce. And then a lot of what we're doing is distributing. So, you know, our, our platform provides um, all of the tools you need to get that information out publicly. So, literally. Getting this onto your website, mm. getting this into retail e-commerce channels is, is a lot of where Providence spends, spends its time.
1: It's just out of interest, I mean, the e-commerce thing is pretty obvious. You put it on a website, you can see it it's next to a product, all that sort of stuff. What is the experience for a shopper in a shop? Well, how do they get that
2: yeah so the majority of our work and impact is on e-commerce mm. it's it's so much easier to nudge consumers to make more sustainable purchasing decisions on e-commerce because you've got filter you've got search you've got different like curated lists you know like there's so much you can do to kind of nudge behavior there so we, that's really is where we have the majority of our impact the in-shop experience we do provide QR codes on pack to help subst- essentially what that does is help support campaigns in-store where a brand can say we're transparent, or you know, we've opened up our supply chain, or or mm-hmm. we've reduced waste in our supply chain. So those kind of key claims that you might be making in store, we really believe you need to back up with transparency. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, how that might manifest is through something like a QR code on pack or. A QR code linked to a statement, and then that experience behind the QR code is a Provenance powered experience, but it exists inside the brand's own website. Gotcha. So essentially, we're just helping them manage the content, ensure it's trustworthy, uh, and kind of provide that integrity layer. Mm. But yeah, I mean, the, the sky's the limits on the kind of campaigns you can create and store, and the messaging, and you know, videos, and and you know, that's really just down to the creativity of the brand. But Provenance is there, you know, to be that kind of integrity layer and and make sure, yeah, they don't get called out for greenwashing. And, and that <laughs> this is really something a shopper can trust.
1: I think that could give the point of difference, isn't it? Because they might go, right, I really want to go to town and do this and, and see where it mm. goes. And you, you know, maybe different to the shop next door and you look, you look better as yeah. a result. Or you yeah. are better, sorry, not look, are better as yes. a result. Yes,
0: yes. But oh. your oh. favourite shop is um, was one of the pioneers on that, yes. wasn't
1: it? Well, Everlane, which yes. we used to go to a lot in, yeah. in New York. Well, you or... used
0: to make me. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> so we did. We walked a long way. But yes, they we used to do it on little sort of plaques and all that sort of stuff, but I guess yeah. you're... You're taking it to Web three versions. So no, totally.
2: Uh, Everlane is it was is really important kind of milestone in this. Like they mm. they were a real uh, transparency pioneer and did a lot of the stuff that we help brands do today. Like we're essentially just a software service to deliver, mm. Mm. you know, sort of an Everlane type experience. I think the key difference is Everlane were marking their own homework. Right, they were just yes. sharing. What there was no independent yeah. third party.
0: But we do believe them one hundred percent Do we? Is there, <laughs> is there a
3: customer angle here? Because I think about this and I think it's absolutely inspiring and really fantastic and then I come back to my own selfish needs which is actually as a person who occasionally has to get onto a plane what I would really like from this is the ability to calculate over time and see my impact Mm. and so for all the products Mm. and buying what the fantastic thing about a universal standard or an accepted standard is that you can aggregate content data from multiple sources and so as a customer, shopping in a store, shopping online, shopping for products across a range of different verticals, what I could be doing with the standard is to then see and calculate my impact. And I'm really loving, I know I, I got in to change any energy suppliers because my Shit. energy supplier feeds my data back about what, what, what my impact is on the planet. Great. And if I could have a, a place, and whether it's you know, provenance building it or other, someone else building my impact from all my purchases where i can scan in the qr codes or I just say here is what i've bought and i can feed that into a central system that can help me make some right choices but potentially you can also build benefit mm. and i think about things like you know environmentally linked investment loans and yep. environmentally sound buildings and to, to be able to say everything in this house everything that i have
2: created here has got this impact mm-hmm. this net impact definitely yeah. so the next era of quantified self right we've been looking at our own mm. bodies but what about our yeah. impact that absolutely. we have like absolutely so
0: the accountant is rising again when you look at <laughs> sustainability everything's measured between two points so whatever those points are dinosaurs measure a different time scale than we do and businesses maybe are working quarterly and yet the impact of, for example, cotton production may be unchangeable within a 20-year timescale. So when you're looking at sustainability, how are you extending that window so we go beyond minimising the sort of short-term egregious harm and manage to get to a world that is financially, economically, environmentally, socially sustainable, which is obviously a you know, a, a broader and maybe more difficult question.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think this is really difficult. It's something we talk about a lot as a team, which is capitalism has turned us into this very short-termist business society obsessed with growth. And I, I just think the reality is, uh, you know, I, I love running a business. I really believe business can be a force for good, but I do also really think regulation is needed. And at mm. the end of the day... I think a lot of what we're doing at Providence is also trying to pave the way for better regulation because...
0: And transparency. So if you look at, yeah. for example, financial disclosing, this is my third account, I I need to seek help. But, you know, disclosing um gender-based pay, Yes. You know the makeup of staff, uh, ethnicity, all these kind of things that are led by big companies. So you've got some levers against them. Definitely. That transparency light leads to growth.
2: Definitely. Absolutely. So, uh... Well and but the government has to play a role like it re- it really does like we're doing like it, there's a lot of positives to being sustainable for, for business, and I think many brands have been successful in showing that, but yeah. there has to be more penalties for emitting the amount of carbon we are and not not switching energy when you could do so, yeah, but but exactly, there's not, that regulation won't exist or be enforceable without transparency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is get business, you know, to early adopt and, and be the change, but... At the end of the day the government also needs to come and crack down on the polluters basically
0: so we've covered staff we've covered the brands themselves leadership capitalism government regulation (laughs) and a bit of double entry that's pretty good before we turn to cn just tell me about that switch from engineering to science were you already one of these engineers that played with python and thought i'm not going to use excel because i can code that in two lines or did you come to it later and think do you know what I like this I'm going to follow it through
2: yeah I, I mean definitely always being really into yeah computers technology gadget early adopter and then yeah as part of my engineering degree like early on I, I got to do you know I wish it was useful things like Python it was like C++ which is like really not useful but yeah very interested in like being able to, to build stuff out of nothing I, I really enjoy that um and then yeah got into web3 stuff Um, kind of by accident like you know friend of mine uh was just into bitcoin and i just i don't know went down a rabbit hole of what this could be and yeah, saw something special. And... Excellent.
0: Now it's Doctor Rabbit Hole. Well no, it's not. I
2: I, mean, I should say this. I was doing a PhD when I started Prominence but ah. I still haven't finished it. But
0: then <laughs> I'm you... still technically doing it. It's, it's the German approach, which is why why take less than fifteen years?
2: I know so. no, that's what I figure as well. I'm like, Well, I'll probably finish it at some point, but yeah. I just haven't had quite the spare moment. I just need to write it up. Just a quick hundred thousand words, so
0: I'll, um... <laughs> Just wait a bit longer and AI will do it for you. And, I know, you know that's make, what I'm thinking. You'll be sorted. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Uh,
0: Jesse, thank you so much for that. So many interesting points, and we'll be coming back to those, I'm sure. But we're going to swap now to Sien, who mentioned banking. But I remember a minibus journey with Sien, where in the space of about 20 minutes, I'd change my energy supply and change my bank. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now we know how persuasive she can be. Welcome, Sien. Tell us about you and a little bit about kingfisher and what global product might be
3: okay so i'm a product person i help businesses primarily retailers create things that people can use that are easy to use and primarily digital things either for customers or for colleagues so over time that's been building great mobile websites from the early days of mobile, and I I like to say pre-the iPhone, I was building educational products for disadvantaged learners where mobile phones for a 14 to 16-year-old were the must-have thing. You were sending texts, you were playing little sort of snake games on your phone.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And actually, if you wanted to engage someone who is, you know, really feeling disengaged from education and wanted to build numeracy and literacy skills mobile was deemed to be a great way to do that Mm. and so i worked with some really fantastic early pioneers in mobile to build things that were easy for learners to use and also really easy for teachers to create and to deploy onto devices for learners to use Mm. and all of the lesson planning around that and i think what really fired me up was the constraint of mobile. That you really have to focus on the mo- the most important thing that you want the person using, either the learning object or the you know doing a shopping journey on a very small device. What's important and easy to use and not frustrating and ultimately delightful. I really, I've I've said before to you, I really like to create joyful things that you know, for a customer trying to find out their carbon score or for a customer trying to buy a pair of shoes or for a customer in my world currently trying to, you know, find the right screws for their job, it should be easy. And you shouldn't notice the journey, you Mm should notice the success, which is I've got the thing, I've done it, it was so easy.
0: So help me with the product thing then. So when you're talking about that education experience, I'm seeing the, the mobile phone with its interface as a product. I'm seeing the learning design, the lessons of a product. I'm seeing maybe the mobile technology product. I, sometimes my mind just skips around. saying, I don't know what product means. I mean, it just sounds like you are director of doing interesting stuff with the available technology.
3: That is probably true. Excellent. <laughs> um, that sort
0: of then. I like to <laughs> right. call it
3: the invisible stuff. The products are things of value that we create, and they have an ongoing value that we need to maintain and create for our customers. And back in the day, we had things called projects and you would define a thing, build a thing, complete a thing, and then move on to the next thing. And your customers were left with the thing you'd created with no further investment and no further thought about whether it was continuing to be useful. Mm. And I suppose what products do is they help us to create continuing sources of value and continuing sources of engagement and delight for the customers who are invested in them. So those can be anything from a shopping site, e-commerce site, or they could be other digital products. So, for example, your provenance is effectively a digital product as well, in that it creates a system, a platform for measuring and creating transparency around our sustainability. Mm. And that that should endure over time. It should add new features as they become available. So we don't know what the future is going to hold, but if we've got teams continually listening and looking out there and understanding what's available to make that experience better and what customers would genuinely value, we can then start to build those products and ensure continuing value.
0: Mm. So before we get into Kingfisher specifically, just help me locate what you do within a multinational, very big PLC. So I think it was reported recently Congratulations, 13 billion revenue, well done. But in a company that size, you've got established technologists, plugs and pipes, established digital, established product, established supply chain. So you turn up and say, good morning, I want to now start doing these platform and products. And they go, sorry, you're lovely, but we're busy and we're already (laughs) doing all of this. So how does your role fit into... The ironmongery of an enormous mature business.
3: So my my role and my team helps to connect the strategy, and our strategy is about helping more customers um, access the tools and the products to create happy, healthy homes, and that increasingly. I love
0: that phrase. Is that like official? It is. Come slightly. Happy,
3: healthy
1: it. homes. Have Lovely. you given your version?
0: of it? <laughs> <laughs> Product development exactly. And iterating. Come on. <laughs>
3: So what we help is, we, we help to connect the strategy and one of the, the elements of that strategy is growing e-commerce because more and more customers are using digital means, using e-commerce to, to find out more about products, to make the right choice, to design things and ultimately to purchase things and fulfilment is very much part of that. I place an order, I might have something home delivered, I might go into a store and collect it or I might if I'm in France, I might drive through in my car and collect something or if I'm in Poland, I might collect something from a locker because that is convenient mm. to me.
0: When you say something, these are yeah. like three millimetres long screw up to 30 metre long
3: a full th- chunks
0: of stuff. So not easy or so, homogenous.
3: So lots of complexity in, in our product ranges and helping our customers to make the right choices, helping our customers to um, have that access to the breadth, breadth of choice helping our customers get their things in the in a manner that is convenient and easy for them mm. and as fast as possible. Some of those customers are trade customers. And so for them this is their business. So being able to get the products that they can rely on, make sure that they're available, make sure they can get them quickly and then use them in their um, you know, their customers project mm. is really important. And so one of the things, one of the initiatives for a trade customer is ScrewFix Sprint, which is you know, you can get delivery within an hour to you, wherever you may be. That might be on a job, it might be on home, it might be en route to a customer's job. Yeah. And if you're a plumber, an electrician, or some other tradesperson, that's really important because your time is very valuable. Of course, yeah. And you yeah. need to complete that job and you need to complete it successfully. So.
0: But also, they're often, generalisation alert, using mobiles. So they're not sat Absolutely. in an office with double screens, the keyboard and a lever arch file. These are people on a job it's a business tool
3: it is the ultimate on the go you know office in the palm of your hand Mm. so how your your customers contact you how you're finding your location you've got your list of all the things you need for that job you can see the in-store stock you can see where it's available you can either go and collect it and check in with your mobile phone you'll see all the new screw fix stores got a fantastic fast lane it's blue if you've got the app, you just check in and there it is. You, your products are there. You don't need to I
2: wait. I can vouch for this. My, my husband's a carpenter, so uh. hu- huge fan of your work. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the blue lens. It's seamless. <laughs> <laughs> just out of interest, is the, is, the, is the business customer more demanding? I don't mean they're all prima donnas. I mean, in terms of their needs, more demanding than a consumer at home, as it were. And so do you design everything for that edge I- case?
3: I think we design things for specific customers and we would design we would take all of those different customer sets and make sure we're designing the right experience for their customers. So a business customer, a trade customer, this is this is their source of value for their business and so we need to make sure that we're delivering a fantastic experience for their needs. They tend to be high frequency customers because mm-hmm. they are repeat purchases within a very specific category. So they might see just a proportion of your range. But they tend to repeat purchase those particular products. Mm. So, you know, wish lists, reordering, being able to integrate into Mm. your tax and accounting, making sure that you can separate all your different jobs, um, having great access to credit and, and, you know, payment services so that you can manage your business the way Mm. that you want to is really important. But as a customer, and if I think about all of the brand new DIY customers, who we acquired over lockdown because they couldn't access the trays that they needed, so they had to go. Mm-hmm. So we you know, we could see that we acquired new customers, people were learning new skills, and we've retained those much younger and new yeah. DIYers.
1: The and ones they that have... lived
0: after the unfortunate
3: <laughs>
1: accidents. Well you've got to repair your, the, the mistakes you've made, haven't
0: That's you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <But> then pharmacy <laughs> pharmacies did well with all these cuts and you and can blasters. see
3: the growing confidence of the customers, but be, being able to make sure that you're making the right choice. Being able to see a product, making sure you have all the information, including the specifications. If you're doing a kitchen, being able to visualize what that might look like in 3D. And now, more recently, being able to use augmented reality glasses to be able to walk through so you can really know that you've made the right choice. And that's, you know, that's a different kind of customer. So those customers might be really infrequent because you've got a kind of a weekend warrior job. I just need to do this thing. You do it, you gain some success, or over lockdown you landed up tiling where you had never tiled before, and now you realise this is right. fantastic, and your ambitions grow, so now you want to do the whole bathroom, or the whole kitchen. And and for the those customers, <laughs> it's about making sure that we, we continue to meet yeah. their needs, we continue to provide trust. And so
0: maybe I'm just getting old but I'm listening to all of this thing that's amazing is amazing it leads to more sales that's amazing that's amazing it leads to repeat sales it's amazing, amazing it leads to higher margins so we were talking earlier on about you know the broad swathe of sustainability proof points but it sounds like you've got quite a lot that come together in if we do this and that we'll see the impact in our sales do you have any other measures around that maybe leading indicators that a yelp of joy from a carpenter day one leads to more sales day 30, or are you still being judged on the sales impact of projects?
3: So sales and revenue are a lagging indicator, you're absolutely correct. And what our teams do is look at, try and find leading indicators for specific areas. So for example, if you take an e-commerce website, a leading indicator may be the customers visit directly because they, they, they found you via, Google or some other search engine the first time around, but now they know what you're about and they come and visit you directly. You might then say, well, what's a good measure of engagement? If someone is, you you know, browsing lots of pages, what's a good measure of, I've searched and I've found, and we call that get to product, which is the likelihood of a customer inputting any search term and getting to a product detail page and then spending time on it. But not all sales are going to be immediate and online. Because we know for the kinds of products we sell, there could be a fairly long research period. So things like bookmarking, adding to a wish list, sharing something are all good indicators of intent. And I think those are where you can start to identify, Mm. are you doing the right thing? Are you going to ultimately have the outcome that you want, which is to grow e-commerce sales? by some of the things that you're starting to develop and can you use those early lead mm. indicators to determine are we on track or do we need to pivot and do something a bit different?
0: Yeah. So, speaking of pivots, tell us how you go from education into retail.
3: I know it's a big jump.
0: <laughs> well, not um, as big as from linguistics. Jessie's like so. the other way around.
3: <laughs> I, I like I really love the idea of making meaning and to understand how people uh, find joy uh, in in the media that they consume. And I think that was probably the start point for me. And and education was a natural start point. My background is in linguistics and particularly in semiotics and pragmatics. So I I like... You notice none of us are
0: asking you to define that (laughs) because we we wouldn't know. (laughs) This is
3: all about how people make meaning and how people communicate. And I naturally gravitated. And I think I I was... very early into computers and into um, design, how you could take pub- move from publishing into web design and then how you could optimise the web and ultimately optimise it for small devices. And when I discovered retail, and this was back in the day of m and and building the first mobile website for m and I discovered the joy of you instantly know when you've got it right for a customer because they can find something, they leave a product review. You can see the sales graph going up, and you can also see the impact across the business. So even before Omnichannel was a thing, you could start to understand the opportunity of that online to in-store journey and the in-store to online journey in terms of helping customers find things and order things, even if it wasn't available Mm. in their shop or if it wasn't available for home delivery. And I think that's, that's been the journey for me, is I absolutely am passionate about and love retail, because you can be very close to customers.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think in at Kingfisher, in the group role, across all of our banners, we have um, many different types of customers in ve- many different markets and different contexts and different levels of maturity. But the challenge is still is still there to make sure that we can take each one of those markets and each one of those customer types whether they be brand new or a trade customer and help them get more out of their experience with one of our brands
0: mm. so just give us a quick sketch of those fascias so obviously we know and love Screwfix. now you've got b&q and
3: q and and then in france we have castorama france and we also have Brico Depot France. So Castorama France is, is more generalist home improvement. Brico Depot France is more discounter and trade focused. Mm-hmm. And then we have Brico Depot Iberia, um, and that operates across Spain and Portugal. We have Brico Depot Romania and Castorama Poland. So a, a broad range of our banners. And we then also have a joint venture with Koçtaş in Turkey.
0: Wow okay so lots of improvement trade activity going on what was the big jolt for you if any going from m and mainly clothing bit of home but mainly clothing John Lewis full range department store much beloved uh, of the middle classes and then all of a sudden boom Kingfisher where you have very different role types not just life stage some things you've outlined uh, international, which neither, in a way that neither of those were. So you land a Kingfisher, you say, good morning, bonjour. What was the big difference in terms of your focus and your role?
3: I think it's that DIY as a as a vertical is is less mature and less developed and has always been quite physical the the product sets require mm-hmm. that you are able to see touch and feel to a much higher degree than many other products and I think precision of information is really important for for a lot of the categories of work and especially the bespoke products so if you're having a window made or timber cut or paint mixed Mm -hmm. and so stores are incredibly important with within kingfisher businesses and we can see that from the very high rates of click and collect as well that Mm -hmm. customers really like to go into store and the store is a key source of information reassurance trust and inspiration as well and so i think that was probably the the big shift is that many of the other categories i worked in had had moved pretty much online if you think about fashion that need to physically go in store it's still lovely to go into store but it's no longer necessary to go into store whereas I think for, for DIY and home improvement the store will, will continue to be a really important focal point and mm-hmm. uh, you know an education point as well.
1: Isn't there, isn't there a huge uh, for, for what you just described isn't there a huge commitment to content to help people like me understand how to badly fit the bathroom or whatever it may be is, and is that a bit of a, a challenge to sort of keep up with that?
3: I think uh, sometimes the content that we need is not necessarily there, and I think about this. There's, there's different types of content. There's the the attributes of the product <laughs> uh, that need to be absolutely accurate and as complete as possible, and you need to think about what what are the what's the minimum set of information a customer might need. And then there's there's more inspirational content, so so imagery, videos, CAD files, for some of the things that we want to do as we start to move into things like three D design. And that can be quite a challenge, either because it's not there at source, mm. or, or to to create it on an ongoing basis for mm. for hundreds of thousands mm. of products.
0: Yes, and again, you've got the the specifications tend not to just be dimensional. Like, it be load bearing. Is it legally okay? I mean, is mean, it energy
3: not... efficient and I exactly?
0: Think. And so there must be an overlap. Uh, so two overlaps, I suppose. One is the sustainability overlap in the you want to be more sustainable and show that but also you've got a very rigorous supply chain that says you know how many millimetres can this flue be from a window et cetera, et cetera. so it seems to me that this is a combination of very high risk of getting it wrong and very high amounts of work to get it right which doesn't seem like a pleasant place to be day to day is that a fair no. summary
3: I think it's a really interesting place to be because this is one of the areas where technology is is starting to play a role, so certainly um, within our data science team we're looking at ways that we can source and create that information if it has ever been created anywhere because we have unique identifiers for products, so um, uh, using AI to add attributes, um, understanding an image and being able to add attributes from imagery understanding substitutions and what genuinely is a similar product Mm. um, is what our data science team are working on so we've got a couple of really interesting experiments as we grow that team to understand how can we leverage new technology to help solve customer problems and in this instance it's it's really helping solve the problem of choice which is am i making the right choice Mm. and if i can't find the thing i want what is genuine genuinely a better substitution the that's fascinating because that
0: of we often talk about very large-scale technology, yeah. and you know I've been told off a number of times for having the view that in general mm. retailers are users of technology, but don't always have the skills in house to be real developers of because they lack the scale or the ROI and the time scale isn't there. But having a, a, a data science team, that's actually a, a pretty significant investment and interesting source of competitive advantage
3: absolutely and i think uh, that's one of the 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 joys of working in a in a company such as kingfisher there is an absolute commitment to growth and to growth through 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 technology in service of customers So growing the digital team, growing the engineering team, and specifically growing the data science and data engineering capability means that we can really start to accelerate that journey Hmm. because we find ourselves here in 2022 where these things are available.
0: Hmm. I think the product just isn't glamorous enough a title for all of that fun. So maybe we should run a prize for uh, (laughs) (laughs) just a more glamorous title. Not that I was saying, uh, you know, we should be pleased with it. Now, so far, it's all sun and sustainable roses but you've got a European role are you going to tell me that it's super easy running geographically culturally market dispersed teams and everything's lovely
3: I think everything is actually really lovely Uh, with my my (laughs) rose-tinted glasses on. I think one of the, the, the joys is we are in service of local teams who set priorities, work on their strategy, and then work collaboratively with us to bring those to life. So this is one of the joys of a group role is you get to be in multiple people's business with multiple different customer groups. And I think that's how it scales. Mm. So whilst we have a central team, not everything has to be centralised. We are there to, we call it power, the banners. And the banners are really what faces into the customer. And we work with those teams, with incredibly capable and skilled teams in France and in Iberia and Romania and Poland to bring that to bear.
0: That's the second zinging phrase of the day. Yeah, there. what are you going to call the, the podcast? You're
1: going to have to make a choice now. I know. You're be some nut- so you've got glass boxes. <laughs> yes.
0: Power the banners.
1: Yeah. We, right. Loads.
0: Well, look, enough excitement nearly. Before we wrap up, just tell me what's exciting you. So as you leave the studio, you head back to the lovely job. What are you looking forward to? What's the next big thing on your on your radar? You start us off, Sian.
3: I think uh, it's got to be data science, data science. Data engineering and just the awesome experiments that we can run using
2: those capabilities. Oh,
1: I feel a follow up called for Yeah, you yeah. exactly. You should so do Jessie, a, a
2: whole, I think the product domain is, is the king. It's yeah. so underestimated. But well, digital. look,
0: we'll ask our listener what <laughs> what she'd like us to do next time. Uh, and she has 100% of the vote. Okay. Jesse, what are you up to next? Are um, you joining the team to work on your PhD? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm also very passionate about product. I do, you know, we have a product team at Provenance. You know, much smaller team than than you've got, I'm sure. But I I do think it's the it's the heart of the the company. You know, really making sure we're serving our customers well. And so yeah, I, I'm also ex- I'm excited about learning. Also, like I think that's a big role of a startup is just constantly learning, absorbing that learning, and creating better products for your customers. So yeah, and we are getting a lot of data now. Like Provenance has reached a scale where we're seeing lots of shopper interactions and changes of behavior based on different types of claims and so um, yeah i'm excited for this year to really use that data to kind of help our customers both make progress for sustainability but also help Mm -hmm. serve their their customers better because we are seeing that shift
0: so great look i think you've both sort of exposed the fallacy at the heart of trying to structure a podcast by put you into one box saying talk about this to what that was in fact you both showed that all of these things come together so this data technology product service customer commerce we've touched on it all I feel a bit exhausted now well, a a bit exhausted yeah exactly a it's a glass box. box there you go on that Jesse cn JB thank you all so much
2: thank
0: you thank you thank you hey that was fun,
1: wasn't it? That I mean, brilliant.
0: I don't bother scripting any of this. It's much more. <laughs> it's much more fun when uh, you just, you know, follow through. Really interesting. No,
2: that was great and so uh, amazing. I really think the thing about you and
1: product that, that you've got to be able to explain things really well, and you both explain mm. them very, yeah. very well. I think that's a, that's a key uh, yeah. skill set.
3: I think we both get to play in someone else's space and then bring it to yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah, so yeah build yeah. on it, which I think is really mm. lovely.